Some people call me Jimmy A. Some people call me Jimmy Abig. Thanks for listening to the True Tunes podcast. Isn't it cool when a vision comes into being like this and it and it's, oh, it's because shocking. of so many people that can come together and help with something? Like hundreds, that. literally yeah. hundreds of people. You're looking at a pole. I know your listeners can't see it, but I've got about a 14-foot, the equivalent of a telephone pole, sort of. Mm-hmm. And I'm in the process. I Matt Slocum took me out. We collected it out up in Springfield and brought it here. I took the bark off it, trimmed all the the bump, the elbows where limbs were, and I've got it ready now to where I can belt sand it, and then I'm gonna paint rings on it for a place to put the names of everybody who has helped with this, which oh, are hundreds. Wow. But I, you know, I'm pretty determined to have a donor, uh, a respectful donor sculpture out in the yard to thank the some loud, some silent voices that have helped me. Wow get here because honestly john i i didn't i didn't have the wherewithal to do this both financially and sort of metaphysically and without the encouragement of lots of friends and family this would never exist hey true tunes family this is charlie peacock i'm glad we all get to spend some time with that amazing character jimmy abeg jimmy and i have known each other for uh, almost 39 years We've made a lot of music together. I love this man. He is beautiful inside and out. Enjoy all that he has to offer. The thing to know about Jimmy Abeg is that those of us who are his friends will actually invent jobs for him to do just so we can hang out with him. This has happened a number of times in my life. Uh, And one of the reasons we do that is because Jimmy can do just about any job imaginable, from being a photographer, to being an actor, to being an artist, to playing guitar, to writing. He does it all, and he does it beautifully. He is one of my favorite people, and it turns out, uh, we found out many years later, that we both went to the same high school Uh, Jimmy graduated the year before I entered, and we both played under the same director in jazz band. So uh, we got roots, and uh, I uh, can't say enough good things about my friend Jimmy Abeg. Jimmy Abeg, it's Amy Grant here. Your creative eye and your artistry have colored so many chapters of my life. I remember when... uh, I lived out at Riverstone Farm and we had a painting of four kind of cherub-like angels and we hung it right in the middle of the ceiling of our living room. It just sort of begged somebody to lie on the floor and look up. And then there's the year that one of my daughters and I received painted bouquets for Valentine's Day because they don't ever go away. And then when we were doing the loft, you took that wild experience that was so freeform and you created an image around it. And suddenly, I don't know, we just like had a quirky painting to go with this wonderful experience. And when I think about those memories of the loft, honestly, I think about the painting and the t-shirts that you designed 
Like that captured it for me. That kind of, it gelled all of those memories into that bright, colorful image. And I, I just want you to know, I appreciate the way that your words paint pictures. I've heard you tell your story of your younger life and you and Michelle, and, and you've told the story of slowly losing your sight. And you just have always been so free and disarming and welcoming everybody to the table that you set. And I'm so glad to be your friend. I'm so proud of you, and I love you dearly, and I'm glad we're connected forever, even though I hardly see you these days. Just know that I'm grateful for you, my friend. Jimmy A. is going blind. And when I say that, I don't mean that colloquially, as in his vision isn't what it used to be. I mean that he can barely see anything. He's way past whatever counts as legally blind. Due to a condition called macular degeneration, he has lost his ability to focus on anything at any kind of distance and can only make out letters using a photographer's proofing loop held up directly to his eye and holding it right up next to the thing he is trying to see. This could obviously be devastating news for a man who has made much of his living in the visual arts, making paintings that have been used for album covers by artists like Phil Keggy, Michael W. Smith, the multi-artist Exodus Project, and Amy Grant's Songs from the Loft Project, and developing a beautiful photography technique that has served many musicians and songwriters perfectly over the years. Jimmy's other main job, playing guitar or bass for touring artists like Steve Taylor and the Perfect Foil, Rich Mullins' Ragamuffin Band, the Charlie Peacock Group, Vector, or his own rare solo music performances is certainly complicated by a late-in-life challenge like a loss of sight. Yeah, Jimmy's blind, but that's not stopping him from painting, or from crafting some gorgeous concrete work in his art garden, or from screen printing one-off prints, or, of course, from playing his guitar, writing songs, and singing. In fact, it could be that this terrible news, this disaster of a diagnosis, might be ushering in a fourth quarter renaissance for this consummate soul man. They say that when we lose the use of one of our senses, the others are heightened in order to compensate for the loss. What might the loss of one sense, especially something as central to one's craft as sight, tell us about the spiritual nature of art and the beauty of adaptation? Strap yourselves in for a profound and inspiring conversation with someone who is walking out that journey right now. A little bit later, we'll crank up the jukebox and consider a 1986 album that was a game changer on many levels. Peter Gabriel's So was not only one of the most popular albums of the 80s, it was also one of the best. It was the kind of project that provided inspiration for today's guest and his compatriots. Our visit with Jimmy Abeg begins right after we take care of a little housekeeping. Okay, on with the show.
Vector was one of those impossibly good bands that sprang from Sacramento's Warehouse Ministries and their label Exit Records. You've heard us talk about that community before because, well, they stand out in the annals of gospel-oriented rock and alternative music as a group that somehow got it mostly right. Vector also included Charlie Peacock for a time, as well as the searing vocals and bass of frontman Steve Griffith. The A-Train, Aaron Smith of the 77s, played drums for the band for a while, but Bruce Spencer, who also later became the longtime drummer for the 77s, sat behind the kit from 1985 on. After a break lasting over 25 years, Vector has reconvened and produced a brand new album coming out later this year. We intend to visit with Steve Griffith and Bruce Spencer on a future episode, but are thrilled to be able to unveil two brand new tracks for you on this episode of the podcast, courtesy of the band. Here's the first of those two, a song called Flesh and Bone from the forthcoming Vector album entitled Vital for the first time right here on the True Tunes podcast. We've been told so many lies to lock us down. Do we wonder why we're broken? Take our dreams apart and throw them to the ground While everything is stolen warehouse exit world, Abeg was certainly an MVP. He played on one of the first albums to come from that organization. He recorded and toured with Charlie Peacock extensively, including as a critical element of the amazing acoustic trio that Peacock fronted in the late 80s and early 90s alongside the late Vince Ebo. Is there a rhyme and a reason, a cause and effect? Was all of this directly related to the fact I wore a big man's hat? I wore, I wore, a big man's hat. I wore, I wore, I wore a big man's hat. 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 And, as you have heard when we've talked to him a couple episodes ago, after moving to Nashville, Jimmy dabbled with a solo career that was far more artistically exciting than it was commercially successful. He eventually spent a long time playing with Rich Mullins in his Ragamuffin band and continued playing with that band even after Mullins' death. Well, you had no stones to throw You came without an axe to grind Did not tow 
party line The wonder sidekick to the blind Had no stones to throw You had no stones to throw most recently, Jimmy was tapped to play with Steve Taylor's band, The Perfect Foil, alongside John Mark Painter and Peter Furler. I was fortunate enough to get Jimmy and Aaron Smith back in the studio together a few years ago as the rhythm section for an album I produced for blues artist Sean Michelle, which should be coming out later this year, I hope. Jimmy has long been one of the most essential sidemen in the scene. And all along, as you'll soon hear, there's been a paintbrush, a camera, a pencil, a tile saw, or some other artistic tool in his hand. So it should come as no surprise, I suppose, that when life handed him a dark turn, he decided to throw some paint all over it. So now, come with me to Blind Jimmy's Lighthouse, the brand new studio constructed in his East Nashville backyard, and join me as we go deeper with a man who knows a thing or two about making beauty out of chaos. In this big Jimmy, thank you so much first for connecting us with Natalie Bergman and helping oh. that. Man, what we've gotten so much fear, but you were the one that helped connect those dots. Thank well, you. it's so funny because I had, we were at, I believe it was Easter uh, cookout. Just my wife, Michelle, and I went to my daughter, Jamina, and her husband, Ben's house, and our two grandchildren for an Easter, you know, brunch thing. And during the afternoon, my son-in-law always makes playlists while we gather. And so we're sitting there uh, all just after, after having eaten, sitting around and uh, watching the kids play. And this music comes on and it just floored me. And when the song was over, I asked Ben, which I try not to do because I don't want to be the annoying father-in-law that you know, is interfering in your cultural tastes. And this is Ben from yeah. Third Man Records. Yeah, Ben Ben is at Third Man. And uh, he, in fact, is the guy that signed Natalie and put the record out and just absolutely loves it. Anyway, he said, oh, that's, uh, that's a new artist of ours, Natalie Bergman. And I'm thinking, oh, my God. I was absolutely floored. And so... Uh, at the, end of, at the end of that evening, he said, you know, this is really great that you love that. Because then we went on and listened to the whole record. And I just, I can't say enough good about it. I just think it's the most refreshing and lovely 
did you kind of resonate at all or um, catch my um, thought that it had that resonance with the early Jesus music oh, stuff? Oh, totally. Because here's what happened. You were, a part, you were a part of that. We talked about right. that. Right. Here's what happened. And I, I said, you know, that's so funny because it reminds me of an artist by the name of Honey Tree. Somehow let me see who I am. I see who I am not See what I haven't got But who am I? Who am I? You know the rest. I mean, I hooked you up with Ben with an email and the rest yeah. followed suit and that you know later that day he called and thanked me for that so i'm sure you know some some cog bigger than me is at work assembling pieces like that because it's it's a pretty fractured fairy tale the way that came together but i still think that record is shockingly beautiful do you suppose that there's something in there for us to learn or to to contemplate when it comes to where we look yeah where we find the things that might be the surprises in our life yeah. whether it's somebody like amy grant that some people might dismiss uh-huh. for certain reasons but has some stuff for us that we weren't thinking about Big or time. somebody like natalie bergman that's on third man maybe we're looking in the wrong places yeah. or we're looking with the wrong eyes or listening with the wrong ears but what do you think we might take from this when it comes to blessings in disguise oh i think it's all about bias you know it's where we spend our time and what we do with our our uh, available i guess you'd have to call it entertainment hours you know of the day i mean i i have an un- unusual circumstance in that i've i've been sequestered for so long due to blindness i can't drive you know i get out a little bit you know i do my exercise and stuff but it's not like i have uh I'm I'm the opposite of most people. You know, they're they're out running around doing things. And I mean, you're you're here today. Thank you for coming to me because I could <laughs> never come to you. But so I'm an exception in a way because I do pay a little closer attention to the sonics out there in the world than I do what I see because I can't see much. Mm. And so maybe it's what people say about you know the the senses if you if you lose one then the others are heightened and that that might very well be a possibility which would inspire me to suggest maybe people should close their eyes for a little while mm. and see what happens maybe maybe things will come to you maybe you'll hear something smell something touch something or feel something that you're not able to because all five are engaged Let's rewind the, the tape a little bit, and f- especially because I'm confident there's going to be people listening to this that are going, Jimmy who? And yeah. what, what, what are we <laughs> talking about? You have a long career in music, but mm-hmm. you also have a long career as a visual artist. Right. And currently, you've been in the last several years, five years now, gradually losing your eyesight. Yeah. Yeah. So tell me about just, let's, let's do a, a quick recap of your creative career. Tell me about your history with art and and how that and and then how that kind of started to speak into your your spiritual 
explorations and how those things all started a conversation in your in your head and your heart? I guess I was just lucky because I was born with a gifting in, in the visual arts a little bit and a gifting in the musical arts a little bit. And I had the benefit of having a pretty outgoing personality. You know, I'm, I'm fairly inviting to strangers. So that, that then brought me into a place where my, my gifting would meet opportunity. And I think that, you know, that's, that's a big piece of the unspoken, invisible world out there for people who are visual artists who want to achieve something uh, or musical artists or any art form for that matter, for people who want to achieve uh, some level of success. Now, granted, as Kurt Vonnegut would put it, you know, being an artist is a great thing and it will it will make you uh, a better person but few and far between are those that make a living from it so be warned that mm -hmm. this is not an easy life for those that are uh, saddled with those gifts you know better that you were born a stockbroker maybe but uh, in my case it, it worked out well because my art uh, all through elementary school and high school, I was often met with opportunity to, to use it in ways, you know, poster design or this, that, and the other, which led to album cover work, which led to sh art shows, you know, like group shows or even one-man shows over the years. And it, it, was, it was not my intent to become, you know, I, I, I never had a, a career path uh, counseling session to help me define how to hopscotch into, you know, promise. And the same could be said with music. You know, I was music gifted early and so was always in, in bands, either my own or with others. And, you know, lucky for me, I had, uh, uh, I had a, a God who was literally delivering opportunities to me uh, unbeknownst to me that I could either accept or deny and largely the opportunities that came to me both from an art side and from a music side were not me banging on any door it was me being available to answer the phone or respond to an ask or being in a conversation that because of my outgoing nature I would often be in a situation where something would come up and, you know, heck, I wish we had blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, well, I could do that for you. Mm. And so, you know, it's born out of a servant's heart, I think. I meet people all the time. Hey, Mr. A, how do you, how, I want to be a, you know, a sideman in a band. How do I do that? And I'm like, man, first, first job is become as good as you can on your instrument or with your voice or with your songs or whatever. And then I'm, I'm afraid you're going to have to wait around for the invite because we, we don't like people who show up on our front door and force their way in. I, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to entertain those visitors for long. <laughs> right. You know, I'm probably more, more apt to look through the curtain and say, nah. Right. You know, but if I call you and you come over and then we emerge into some 
creative intellectual endeavor that's a whole different thing and there's so many great uh, opportunities that are out there that we can't even imagine they exist until we're in a position to execute and so yeah to answer the question i've done them both i straddled them to my uh demise in a way for years and years and years and you know i i've been the right component in a lot of circumstances that i certainly didn't deserve to be in but because of my availability and and god's unique sovereignty in my life and my calling you know i didn't audition to be a guitar player with anybody you know the 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 opportunities came i bought them up and executed it the best of my ability and the same with the arts and now it's a different chapter because now i i only recently i think it's courtesy of my blindness have recognized that god has a whole another couple of chapters with me to affirm uh, a person's value in the world despite their handicaps and despite their weaknesses and uh in a in a way i'm going against the grain by being a visual artist who can't see for example and i think that's a good thing i think that pronounces something different about how we should then live and especially as a person of faith i mean it should be no secret that that I am a, a big Jesus follower. And for me, you know, at the end of the road, the, the denominational uh, smorgasbord that is on offer holds nothing to the very essence of what it is to be in relationship and to be a follower of Christ. That's a big deal. One man's got a big idea. Another man comes along with some I know that your music and even your painting career that I know of goes back to the early Exit Records stuff. Oh, yeah. But going back before that, like in your life, was guitar and painting and creativity always woven in with your sense of spirituality and faith? It was, and I'll tell you why. I I was born and raised in a Catholic home. And so courtesy of my Catholicism, I attended mass <laughs> mm-hmm. weekly, and if not daily, when I was an altar boy, it was daily. You know, I mean, you got you sign up for two yeah. week stretches four times a year, and I did all of that. And so, by the time I was thirteen, I was fooling around with the guitar, courtesy of you know, uh, hot fun in the summer, you know, summer in the city, uh, the Beatles, the you know you name it i mean i was a i was a sponge and so i picked up the guitar early and was immediately drafted into guitar mass at church starting at i believe 12 or 13 and i did that all the way through high school and uh, in high school of course i started and was a part of many top 40 bands where we played not just church, but we played bars. You know, I was in a in bands that we played proms, we played Air Force bases, we did what is called casuals in the music yeah. business, where you just go out and play parties. And so I did that all the way until I got saved 
uh, at 18 and then beyond. And uh, real quick, what's what, what's the distinction you're making between being in a Catholic home and being saved? Well, I was raised Catholic, and there is a, quite a distinction for me because I had I had a spirituality. Uh, I guess it was kind of inert, if that's a word. It was in there, but it was dormant. Gotcha. And so uh, some years uh, pass, and I'm I'm always sort of aware. And at the age of 18, uh, I graduated high school, and my parents moved. At my graduation, at the end of that chapter, my parents took that as a chance to relocate. So they moved to Sacramento from Denver, Colorado, which is where uh, I spent the last three years. I was raised in western Nebraska. We moved to Denver when I was a sophomore in high school, so I went sophomore, junior, senior in Denver graduated and then moved to Sacramento. Well, that summer, I went on a thing called Outward Bound, which is a wilderness training course that was about a six-week uh, in-depth boot camp for mountaineering, which was one of my interests, and it was really fun. And on that trip, I met a kid from South Carolina that every day, you know, he would try to get me to become a Jesus person. And what year is this? 1973. So this is the Jesus movement, like... Full on. Full blown. So I come home from Outward Bound. My parents are gone. I stayed with a friend. And then within a few days, we embarked on a hitchhiking trip from Denver via... We, want, we had always dreamed of going to the four corners of America, which is Arizona, Utah, New Mexico, and uh, Colorado, where they meet. So we went to the Four Corners, uh, stayed at uh, Monument Valley, and before you get there, it's that beautiful Indian carved homes in the, what is that called, the uh, Mesa Verde. Oh, Mesa Verde. So we stayed at Mesa Verde for a few days, and then went on through Monument Valley, and then on to the Grand Canyon, and then ultimately our destination was L.A., because the, this guy I was hitchhiking with, his uncle lived there and we were going to get to stay for a few days and then make our way on up to my new home in Sacramento. While, while I was in L.A., we spent that first night on the beach. Unbeknownst to us, it was illegal to sleep on the beach, but we didn't know, so we rolled out our bags and spent the night on the beach. And the next morning, there are 10,000 people on the beach, right? So, And in that group of people were uh, a group of best described as evangelists young long-haired hippies we all had long hair we were clearly their their uh, target and we got witness to that set something in course set something in motion where i really felt like i met jesus himself in that in that little moment and from there on Man, I got baptized with the Holy Spirit maybe less than a year later. I mean, I was on a whole new trajectory from that point forward. And it was because someone carefully helped me define how I could have a relationship with a living Christ. As opposed, not slagging my upbringing because I think it set the stage perfectly for, for my need but uh, it's irony to me that that's how it 
worked for me. I got saved right smack in the middle of the Jesus movement and carried on from, from there. I was a bass player mostly, but from there on out, I saw myself as a guitar player and began to lead worship and do all the things that a guitar player who's also a Jesus nut would do. And so that led me to my association with my fellow Sacramentans. You know, we started attending a, what was then a very small church that grew to be a pretty damn big church <laughs> with a lot of talent. And so, you know, I just kind of went, graduated from, from situation to situation until we were making records and, right. you know, the rest is kind of history. I've been asking myself Many people have pointed out that music, the most interesting music is not often made by people in their strengths as it is when they're working around their weaknesses. Amen to that. And it's interesting that you're talking about being a visual artist who's going to find this next couple of chapters, being a visual artist who's blind. I want to talk about that. What functionally how does that work and then spiritually and creatively how does that work well there are two i mean that's an important distinction i mean as you look around my space you're you're my first guest really john wow the guys i had a handful of guys steve taylor you know steve hendelong phil madeira ben pearson and tom galata helped me go get all my stuff out of storage a couple of weeks ago this was just a big empty room and we dumped it in here and I've kind of finagled my way to, to position things so that it's workable. And over time, I think I'll make some adjustments. But one of the things that I have to consider is where do I keep red? <laughs> you know, because I can't see very well anymore. Right, yeah. And literally reading is out for me. So I've created an organizational system. Uh, I built all these drawers. Luckily, I have gifting as a semi-hack woodworker and cabinet maker. And so I've built my space to house things in a way that I can find. I'm, I'm shooting for the 75-year-old me. I'm 66. I just turned 66 a few weeks ago. So I'm shooting for the 75-year-old guy that is going to get worse than where I'm at now. Where I'm at now is pretty damn blind. But I'm told... I will never be completely blacked out blind, but it will all, I will be always on this downward loss of vision over time. So I'm trying to plan ahead to have my stuff in places where I know it is because my work, even as you look at the paintings that are on the wall, very tactile for me. I know what I'm doing because I've been painting for 50 years and I know what, my in that case, I know who my audience is, so I can define some space and create a uh, in a, a surface with some ingenuity and 
maybe some caverns so that it's appealing to my uh, hopeful buyer over on the other end. Whereas that painting with the words on it, I've discovered in my life in the last few years that I'm a pretty good writer. And so my writing, I have decided in an effort to allow people to see the way I see, I've been using my words to illustrate how I see. So this is in progress. It's about halfway there. I write my little short story and then I come over the top of it and blur it. My effort is to make it so that you see the way I see. Oh, wow. So that when you go and look at that painting, you're not going to, you know, there's something in there, but you're not quite sure what it says. (laughs) And so it's blurred on purpose Mm. so that people can get a, get, I often get the question. So what do you see? Mm -hmm. Like, well, I don't see you, for Mm -hmm. example, you're about five feet from me. So you're a big silhouette kind of blob. I, I notice uh, there might be a little, if you have a beard, there yeah. might be a little gray right yeah, here right, on the top right. part. Yeah. But it's pretty ambiguous over there right. to me. And so even uh, without an instrument like a magnifying glass or my special 20 times magnifier so that I can read a word if I absolutely have to, um, I don't see much right so my effort is to create a, an environment in a world what i've noticed over the last five or six years is that if things are in the same place like cooking mm-hmm. i'm a really good cook but not anymore because i can't read recipes you know i i mean i know how to cook so i'm I, even my kitchen is set up so that i know where things are because it it has been a trial and error the last few years to discover um, you know, the most mundane of things like brushing your teeth. I was staying with a friend in Portland on tour some years ago when I was first getting getting bad with the perfect foil. We were out on the road and we played in Portland and then I just went to his house and he said, here's your bathroom, here's your our guest bedroom. Everything's just the way you want it. Um, and there's toothpaste and I, here's a brand new toothbrush, so you don't even have, my stuff had gone on the bus, and so I didn't even have my DOP kit, and he said, don't worry, we got you covered, I'll, I'll take care of you and get you back to the, the truck, or it wasn't a bus, it was a big 16-passenger van, and uh, anyway, uh, late, late at night after a long and fun conversation, I go to bed and I reach for the toothpaste, and what I thought was toothpaste was preparation H. Oh gosh! And so I brush as soon as oh, I could tell no. as soon as it hit my it's mouth yeah, yeah. that it was the wrong thing. Oh. But it's things like that that people don't know about. Yeah. You know, I mean, a famous thing that happened a couple of years ago here in my my house, my domain, my yard. Every year in in, in Tennessee, I have to spray the backyard for chiggers because we get a, a horrible invasion. And if you're not diligent about, you know, trying to eradicate them before they get here, you're gonna have a rough summer. So every year I got into the habit of, of spraying this uh, blue container stuff on my lawn and, you know, on the plants and everything. And so this, this, this year, is probably two years ago now, three years ago maybe, I grabbed the wrong blue container 
the container I grabbed was weed be gone. Oh no. And I killed Everything. every living thing. Oh. And no bugs. I mean, no, no, you know, the bugs were still here. And I inadvertently killed all my plants. So mistakes like that stick with me. Sure. I think I'm a good student of life enough that, and so you with- only make those mistakes once. Yeah. And so with deliberation, the, the studio that you see is, is on its way to being set up mm. for a completely blind old guy. And I think it's it offers it offers every reason to believe I'm going to be very productive in the next uh, 20 years. I got yeah. I got plans for a little recording situation so I can make my own solo stuff and even have people over to collaborate with. And you know, obviously the visual thing is is clearly on its way to yeah. getting worked out. I start every day with the watercolor over there. You know, get on my you know, these are the kind of the pay dirt over here. I've got mm -hmm. to make a living somehow. Mm -hmm. And believe it or not, during COVID, there's a lot of redecorating going on. So there's a lot of action out on, there yeah. for my art. So the big, the big problem for me has been being down for almost two years now. So I can re, restart those engines and get back to what is also uh, an impossibility. I mean, the, the fact that somebody might want something that you make mm -hmm. that's a little bit of a hurdle to get over it's like why do we need another song in the world there are already plenty right so you know every time i sit down i mean i'm working on a bunch of songs right now and it, it's funny because i'm i'm just kind of going for it you know there's not an agenda I'm not trying to prove anything i'm just responding to the call in my life to be who i am and hopefully with better and better results as as time goes on. We're gonna take a brief break from our conversation with Jimmy and crank up the old True Tunes jukebox here for a few minutes. As I've been listening to all of this old Jimmy A music, Vector, Charlie Peacock, and his old solo stuff, it occurred to me that one of the things that really set their community apart from most Christian music of that era was that it sounded like it belonged on normal radio. They had to be, I assumed, listening to real music and not just with the intent of copying it so that they could add Christian lyrics. One album jumped out in my memory as a major touchstone in the 80s, a watershed, as it were, of both deep and soulful meaning and pop culture dominance. So, let me drop some change into the slot here and see if I can get this thing to work. Back in the mid-80s, an era often associated with vapid pop, hair metal, MTV, and pop culture excess, a progressive art rock artist emerged with an album that somehow managed to be both profoundly meaningful and massively successful by just about any metric. Peter Gabriel's fifth solo album after stepping away as the lead singer of the initially prog rock oriented band Genesis was the mainstream breakthrough he never thought he wanted. By dialing in carefully, almost obsessively crafted songs that set insightful, poetic, challenging lyrics to epic melodies, the album, simply titled So, hit a global nerve. One of the challenges in considering the impact of So as an album is the massive success of its component parts. Scoring five hit singles, earning multiple Grammy nominations, So lost the Album of the Year award to Paul Simon's Graceland, by the way, 
and selling over 5 million copies generates the kind of familiarity that can actually make careful consideration more difficult than one might think. Beneath all the accolades, the massive tour, and even the critical success is a collection of brilliantly intimate songs assembled by Gabriel, his producer Daniel Lanois, and a handful of core musicians, mostly in the relatively simple studio assembled in a barn on his property. And that album, I maintain, is one of the most important living musical artifacts of the 1980s. It may actually be the album of the 80s for me, because without it, I don't think we get the Joshua Tree the following year. Although I have no way of knowing whether or not the members of U2 had heard any of Gabriel's album while working on their own project, it does seem to me that So brought thoughtful and spiritually interesting pop music from the fringes into the spotlight in a big way. So, what is So? First, let's consider the sound of the thing. Gabriel, long a student of what would eventually be called world music, incorporated African and Brazilian rhythms into his music, not merely as atmosphere or affectation, but as formative and foundational compositional elements so central to his songs that they needn't be overly emphasized. So feels holistic, natural, and completely authentic to Gabriel's established style as those elements merge with his newly expansive melodic sweep and more immediate lyrical approach. Thus he crafted lyrics that moved from cerebral concepts to embodied, emotional, and even physical experiences. This didn't mean dumbing things down though. The songs remained interesting and even complex in places, though in some ways more accessible than his earlier work had been. As a result, the songs on So feel both ascendant and grounded. They boast world-class production and international polish without ever veering into obscurity. Some called it art pop, and I suppose that's as good a term as any. It worked on the radio and thrilled massive live audiences. It worked on MTV, but on a set of headphones, with your heart wide open, it was sonically, intellectually, and spiritually amazing. Lyrically, so takes the listener on an internal journey full of contrasting existential choices. It opens with red rain. Sweeping, epic, and dark in tone, the song combines nightmarish images of blood, floods, holocaust, and maybe the potential for some kind of redemption. The stage is set, and it's full of pain, referencing the AIDS epidemic and the very 80s fear of nuclear war. As the noise recedes, though, is there another possible interpretation? Is there another perspective on this Red Sea? I am standing up at the water's edge in my dream. I cannot make a single sound as you scream. It can be that cool, the ground is still warm to touch. Sledgehammer, for all of its winking innuendo, is also not without its own fork in the road. In the great tradition of Stax soul singers from the 60s, our narrator entreats the subject of his love with innuendo-laden promises of sexual satisfaction, but there's humor here for those with ears to hear it. 
The singer seems to understand enough about the intimate treasure he seeks to portray it as a tender fruit, but not enough, at first at least, to see that maybe a sledgehammer may not be the best tool with which to handle such tender things. But maybe, just maybe, there is something else here, something about realizing the real magic of love is in surrender, not in overpowering urges. As we shed our skin, reveal our true selves, and achieve true intimacy, we go dancing in, together, to that power we've been seeking. Things get truly vulnerable when the third track, Don't Give Up, fades in from silence. Here, the singer, ostensibly a victim of the recession that claimed so many jobs and identities in Margaret Thatcher's mid-80s England, wallows in a deep depression. He can't believe how badly his life has turned out and can't imagine a path forward when the lovely, enchanting voice of Kate Bush filters in like an angel, encouraging the weary soul to rethink his definition of things like success, need, and hope. It's hard not to start thinking eschatologically. thoughts stay firmly ensconced as track four opens with a percussive flourish. That voice again is loaded with spiritual illusion. Whether that voice in question is specifically divine or not, the song underscores the theme of discernment that runs straight through this album. Mercy Street, the desperately sad and beautiful reflection on Anne Sexton's poem 45 Mercy Street, seems, again, to offer just the slightest hint of a glimmer of light trying so hard to make it from a match somewhere in the darkness to a boat out in Sexton's Lake. She pictures the broken glass, pictures the steam, she pictures the soul with no leak at the sea. Take the boat out 
there was an anthem for the era of Reaganism and the dawn of the megachurch, it has to be this. It's practically a celebration of success by scale, and for those who were not there at the time, boy did we have scale in told is a brilliantly bleak bit of conceptual pop art, offering the very simple suggestion that most of us simply proceed as we have been instructed to proceed. The sad, lifeless, militaristic drone of the main vocal is haunting as what sounds like a choir of the damned chants we do what we're told. They may as well be marching off a cliff. Meanwhile, ethereal vocals soar above the morass as if to beg them to look up, before Gabriel's final abbreviated vocal offers the simple line. emotional high point of the album is the one many of us can't hear without thinking of John Cusack and a boombox. I think there is a good chance that Gabriel is talking about something more than human love here. It's not that I don't think he's talking about the love of a woman, he clearly is, but the real draw, the power of the song, is the power that he sees in love itself. It's that power he sees in her eyes. That's the secret to the song, I think. It's not just that her eyes are beautiful, it's that they are the doorway to her soul. The connection here is what it's all about.
By the time we make it through a careful listen to this whole album, the title of this set seems perfect. So, it's as if he's waiting for us to make the next move. How will we respond? Which path will we choose? This year, one of my favorite alternative folk duos, Lowland Hum, covered this whole album. Their simple, dressed-down arrangements and understated vocals reveal how powerful and timeless these songs actually are. Flying birds, excellent birds, watch them fly, there they go. Excellent snow, here it comes, watch it fall. Long words, excellent words, I can hear them, hear them now. This is the picture, this is the picture. Covering any single song by Gabriel is a daring move as it would be difficult to improve upon the original. But this album-length reflection is a true revelation. On So Low, Daniel and Lauren Gones do a masterful job interpreting these classic songs for a new generation. Although I hope to have a full-length conversation with Lowland Hum on a future episode, I asked them about the inspiration behind this project and what it was about Gabriel's songs that inspired them to cover them all these years later. You know, it kind of started as a joke with our manager, and we said, hey, what if we did this really crazy thing right after we have a kid? And then we quickly started to arrange Sledgehammer and sent him a voice memo and in the process of starting to do that we realized wait a minute maybe this would be a wonderful experience and i think the songs on so are a, an unusual combination uh, of tone subject matter the record seems to walk this line of being very serious innovative powerful profound and funny lighthearted in moments we thought that would be challenging but also a wonderful way to get back in the studio after having a kid additionally um, oftentimes when we're recording our own songs we're kind of trying to figure out uh, if the songs that we're working on are good enough to release if they belong on the record together with so we knew the sequence was completely basically perfect uh, and we knew the songs were incredible and so we could focus all of our attention on listening and kind of trying to reimagine these incredible songs thanks daniel you can find lowland hum's homage to so on all streaming services and at lowlandhum.com As I wrap this reflection up, I think it's important to acknowledge the impact this album in particular, and Peter Gabriel in general, had on young artists of faith in the 1980s. While many Christian musicians and fans were heavily invested in crafting an alternate evangelical reality, some sought inspiration and information about how to create spiritually alive and relevant work for the whole world. Gabriel was a major influence to artists like Jimmy Abegg and the other members of Vector and the Exit Community 
It was common to see Peter Gabriel t-shirts at the Cornerstone Festival back then. A generation of progressive and alternative-minded artists grew up in his creative shadow, inspired to ride that lightning between artistic adventurousness and commercial appeal. Gabriel's soundtrack for The Last Temptation of Christ came out in 1989, with which he launched his own world music label, called Real World, actually. He returned in 92 with another epic, mind and heart expanding collection of songs he called simply Us. But the poor jukebox is about to blow a tube, so we'll have to talk about that one down the road someday. Okay, now back to the conversation with Jimmy. I was lucky enough, starting at about four years ago, to go on a silent retreat to Gethsemane Abbey, which is a Trappist mm-hmm. abbey and monastery in Kentucky, not far from here, about an hour and a half, maybe two hours. Hour and a half if you speed, two if you go the speed limit. But it's out in the boonies, and it's a, a chance to get alone and to think about your trajectory and to pray and to... Uh, you know, you can voluntarily go along with the the hours of the day, you know, eight times a day they get together and have a little service. And so you can be a part of that or you can just go up and stay in your room or walk in the woods. Or It's a great chance to literally retreat from the busyness of life and to maybe ask for a refueling or a uh, affirmation or a sign or... Uh, Maybe it's just time to take a break. So for me, it was uh, instrumental, especially in the early years of my blindness. I, I was pretty confused, as you might imagine. How could this possibly be my future, given my visual art thing? And I was a fairly successful photographer and yeah. you know, was able to make a living with those and my music. Uh, in a way that is unique to Nashville. You know, I was lucky that that this is where I lived. My opportunities were massive to do all of those things. And so met with blindness suddenly, that was quite confusing to me to, to wonder what in the world God had in mind for me. That was when I didn't know that I had a, a, a thread of writing in me that, that was undiscovered. And so uh, along with that, though, uh, this idea of figuration, getting back to the art speak, the idea of figuration, I can now discover that with a couple of simple gestural, even from memory, uh, it's funny, speaking of John Joseph Thompson, my memory of you and what you look like will remain frozen in time. You will look like you looked to me the last time I saw you uh, for the rest of your life. That's a pretty cool thing. It's like I I have Hmm. this visual memory of people, places, and things 
that is kind of just ironed in. I won't see you getting older. I will see, when I when I meet with you. I will see John the last time I actually wow. saw you. And I think that is a that's a quiet and a still affirmative blessing that yeah. I I I would say yeah. that is a, a strength. I have uh, I have this friend that. Uh, may or may not end up listening to this because I think he works with you, Bruce Brown. So <laughs> Bruce better. and I go way back, and I have this memory of Bruce. And 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 granted, I saw him about a year ago, uh, maybe a little more than a year ago at the funeral mm-hmm. for our dear friend Rick Elias. And um, my memory of Bruce is that he was with a cane, he was a little bigger than I remembered him being, but I couldn't, there was no specificity to his specificity. 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 <laughs> to his countenance. Yeah. Though I could see his glasses, I could see him getting a little gray. But in my mind's eye, I saw this young, dark haired, uh, I think he was a radio show guy, and I had. In, I, w- I was in the habit of seeing him, seems like every year for decades, sure. courtesy of GMA and whatever other things occurred. But this this won't come as a surprise to me, but it might come as a surprise to Bruce that my memory of Bruce is that of this virile, young, handsome, GTO-driving college kid in a way you know it's like that imprint in my brain when his name pops in that's the guy i see not the guy that i was with a year and a half ago though he is still that guy and i love him regardless looks are meaningless you know in some ways it it has been a a great benefit to me to lose my sight in my you know in my autumn years let's say because it's it's opened up a a um, a door or a channel to see some things that I hadn't seen mm-hmm. in my personal history. You know, this 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 world is a big and vast uh, gift to those of us that are willing to kind of go in and pursue it all. You know, it doesn't have to be uh, uh, misery. It doesn't have to be uh, chagrin. You know, it 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 really is. A place to kind of exercise and I'm fortunate because I have the benefit of a you know a long and productive and fruitful 40 plus year marriage I've got my three kids that are you know very uh, diligent to take care of their dad and I have a massive amount of friends who are also eager to uh, assemble and help with my ability to navigate you know it's it's a funny thing and I, I i point it all to a god who loved me as a baby and as a toddler and as a you know an elementary school toe-headed maniac and and on through the years that you know i personally claim that territory of god taking care of mm-hmm. me and that's a big deal there would be no hunger there would be no tears nothing nothing but the laughter in my perfect world 
something about uh, at least growing up in the Anglican tradition something yeah, I think that it's very similar it to my and Celtic spirituality with Catholicism is seeing all of the world as as under God's purview as opposed to that sort of dichotomistic thing of Christian and secular yeah. and stuff so it seems like maybe that also helped because you were engaged with your faith even if you weren't yeah. 100% there yeah and trust me i'm not a good catholic or a good christian i'm just probably a catholic and probably a christian (laughs) you know it's funny too because in the last few years courtesy of my trips to the gethsemane it has rekindled a pretty strong fire in me for my catholic uh, heritage and you know we 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 know that historically there are problems with every denomination, and that does not exclude the Catholic Church. I think that they're in as much trouble as any right. denomination. So it, it comes with the good and the, and the bad, but the truth is, is that there is a personal um, angle that can be um, maybe experienced, is the best word, by anyone. And so, you know, you don't have to look at the brokenness of it all uh, to recognize its uh, eventual effect. I mean, I, I, I share my faith with those who will listen, but I'm not, I'm not uh, an evangelist or, or any of that barbed wire that comes with some people's calling. Now, there are people I know who are. Mm-hmm. You know, there's, there's very definite giftings. I mean, we just got done talking about my dear friend, Rich Mullins, who, you know, like it or not, had a uh, specific... Uh, gifting that made his words helpful to a whole generation of people, me included. You know, we didn't get to every topic that we could have in that discussion, but one of the things that is most profound about my years with Rich, one of the many things, this one very close to the top, favorite things about him was how much he... uh, loved my wife and my children. My children at the time I met him were probably maybe Jemina, four or five, Purette, seven or eight, Alexia, 11 or 12. And man, he invested in my kids in a way that I only know now in the rearview mirror is important to them. Mm. You know, I had no idea that that's what he was up to culturing in my own children who, you know, it should be noted, they're not followers in the way that I am, but they have a uh, profound sense of place in the world. And I think in no small part, somehow based on some of the things that Rich said and did in their lives. Mm. You know, I was with Rich for fully eight or nine years, maybe 10. And so during that time, I mean, he got to watch my kids grow up just like I did. And one summer... You know, Alexia, my eldest, came out with us for the entire duration. It was a three-month run. And so she was, she rode with him all the time. And, you know, he had a profound impact on how she navigated her teen years, which 
is trouble for any parent, you know, I always just tell people to stay in the boat and keep your oars in the water because there's no, there's no, uh, there's no meaning to how, what the struggle which ensues when you're with your, those years of transition as, as children into teen years and then into young adult. Those are some, those are some tough times for people. And for me, recognizing that the benefit for my children were getting to watch a mom and dad who were choosing a lifestyle completely different from most of their friends, from most of America. I mean, having a, a painter and a guitar player as a dad and having a professional designer and seamstress for a mom is pretty rare. And so they are all in the arts. And I think that the, the you know, I don't wax too philosophic here because the it's it's kind of hard to tell but i think that there is a depth of personality that was encouraged by the way that they saw their mom and dad living i can say a lucky fool three girls came out of the my tears hugs and kisses drive away my fear people say I'm a lucky man white moon in a pale blue sky sweet flowers in the One of the main ideas we've seen emerge as we've done this podcast is this idea of listening to better music and listening to music better because it seems to me that that can help us become better people. Amen. And, and community will benefit from that. I agree. And that says a lot, John, because I think that for me, when people ask me, how do you be an artist? I think, or for that matter, how do you be a, a musician? I think that you set the bar for that. You know, you're, it's in your, that task is in your wheelhouse. And so for me, and, and you'll, you'll resonate with this, I'm sure, because you've been curating the difference between good music and bad music ever since you were a kid. And, you know, that your work kind of proves that out, that point. And you were even hired professionally to help adjudicate what comes in through the gate and what might go out. And I think that those skills uh, should be noted. In other words, when we're listening to music, if I'm sitting down and I'm playing the guitar, is this as good as Leo Kotke would have done it? Is this as good as Bono and uh, The Edge would have invented? Is this as good? You know, and that's a movable feast mm -hmm. throughout our life because every epoch introduces us to new generational flurries like the 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 chris stapleton being on the horizon for me or the jason isabel or the jack whites or the you know the the uncanny diversity of approach and niche of of we've never been in a more available right time to to both consume 
and express. I mean, if I wanted to, I could sit here and play my newest song on my iPad and put it on Facebook this afternoon and see what happens. I mean, that's available. That's crazy interesting to me, right? Mm -hmm. And so what, what, what needs to be said at the same, in the same paragraph is the fact that I'm also my own harshest critic. So I might be working on a song that I still think sucks, and you may think it's astonishing, or I might be working on a painting that I think is nowhere near what I had imagined in my mind's eye, and even more so because now I can't see. So I have, there's a lot of guesswork that goes into the, the work that I make, the, the artifacts that I want to create, both musically, word-wise, and visually. And, and the things that I'm, fight, that I'm battling are my own um, insecurities, let's say, so that I can kind of clear the, clear the way for somebody else to decide if it's helpful or not. I don't, right. I'm trying to take that away from me. Mm. You know, in other words, there's, there's all these people in me arguing over who gets to be who. Right. And I think that there is, at, at the moment, an argument about who, who's going first. Right. And uh, you can pray for me to, to discover <laughs> right. how to have that liberty, Let somebody else how to have that editor. liberty, you know, because I don't right. I don't want to be judgmental even on me, right. you know, except for when it comes to morality and ethics. And there are some things, some things that have a pretty profound line, even those are sort of blurry at times. Mm-hmm. But when it comes to the arts, I think people uh, underestimate their own abilities, mm-hmm. you know, and I, I think that part of what I'm created to do and be, especially in the coming decades, is to affirm that ability to choose in others. And if you curate at a high level, you know, if you're listening to great music and if like what you're doing, if you're trying to help educate us, the public, on what the difference is between really astonishingly amazing or impactful. I mean, it doesn't have to be, you know, I recently discovered uh, a young lady uh, who's kind of made famous, uh, really fresh talent in the bluegrass world, a a young lady named Molly. uh, Molly Tuttle. Molly Tuttle. She's an acoustic artist Mm -hmm. in the tradition of, you know, think Nickel Creek, think, yeah, a little, uh, little edgier. Yeah, little and and certainly a little darker. Yeah. But here's somebody who is, who I think is making an impact, and it's because she's just doing what she has, mm-hmm. and I think that's where, you know, we talk about uh, my legacy. You know, artists like Charlie Peacock, Mike Rowe, uh, man. Griffith and Steve Scott and you know I'm just talking about my own personal fish tank I was lucky to be around people with that sort of uh, engine that they were born with you know Chuck Chuck did things I think astonishingly well at uh, at a very early crossroads in his life and I, I think it was partly because his his sensibility now there might be some ego mixed in with it but I think that mostly it's a have to mm-hmm. and I, I feel like that for for good art uh and good music and good writing in the world there's a have to about it that it needs to be said and it needs to be recorded and it needs to be painted 
and uh, and thanks to COVID, we can't know really where things are because everything's on a timeout. You know, it's like we played the song halfway through the tone arm on the vinyl is like three songs in and then somebody hit that thing that makes the arm come up. The record is still spinning. And the needle's not gone anywhere. And it's it's right where it needs to be and it would work if we could get it to drop on the groove. But I in some ways that's I that's what I feel like we're just in a little timeout. Mm -hmm. You know, those of us who have the position and and capability and thoughtfulness to just be patient to ride this out i I really believe there's something uh coming down the pike that's going to surprise us all Mm. you know and i don't know how that will manifest i think when it comes to music it's going to be trickier because it music requires large gatherings small gatherings and everything in between and for the livelihood of the inventor you know, we can't go out and play five nights a week right now. You know, we, we make records, but the, the, the typical way to make people aware of them is gone. Mm-hmm. The, the way that we uh, distribute music has changed so dramatically. Uh, everything. I mean, man, it's your, it's your guess. And so <laughs> I, as a blind person especially, my work ethic is get up, do my self-care which is eating and a a little devotional and a little exercise for my old body and then i come out here and i try to work and you can see just even in a few days i'm back at making stuff Mm -hmm. and i think that that's all i can really do the rest of it is completely out of my hands you know so the very fact that you're here making a recording of us yeah you know these are the this is this is emblematic to me of the way we can continue to create and provide thanks jimmy and before i pull out my trusty soapbox i want to play this other brand new vector song for you all it fits this conversation so well from their forthcoming album vital here's steve griffith bruce spencer and jimmy abeg with their friend michael rowe with walk on water i can walk on water if i want to i can take a stroll on the moon I can walk on water if I want to I can trip the light fantastic with you I can take my son to the mountain
Again, that was the brand new, currently unreleased song, Walk on Water by Vector, offered under special arrangement for us here on the True Tunes podcast. Thanks, guys. I'm looking forward to hearing the rest of that album and having you on the show real soon. As I pull out my soapbox this time, I'm confronted by the counterintuitive beauty of Jimmy's supposed dis-ability. Coming up in and around music as I have, posturing and presentation just becomes second nature. And now, with social media psychology worming its way into so many aspects of our collective humanity, the combination of our collective temptation towards self-aggrandizement and our ability to curate an online image that emphasizes our strengths and beauty and hides our frailty and flaws will not only render our art soulless and plastic, it might separate us from the kind of honest self-awareness that can bring us closer to each other and to the source of healing we actually need. Intimacy is the secret weapon of art. Seeing the way Jimmy is diving straight into his own blurry future with a heart on fire cuts me to the quick and challenges me in the best possible way. Where are my blind spots? How might I learn to listen better and hear more if I was to focus my attention through some kind of sensory fasting? When was the last time you listened to an album all the way through without looking at anything else other than maybe the album cover or a lyric sheet? Might close, focused listening to music serve as a sort of practice yard for listening to other people when they share their stories, perspectives, and concerns with us? Jean Vanier, a deeply flawed champion of radical community for the least of these, nailed it when, in his book Community and Growth, he said, and I quote, I am struck by how sharing our weakness and difficulties is more nourishing to others than sharing our qualities and successes, end quote. That seems to roll pretty closely with the biblical idea that it is through our weakness that otherworldly strength can be realized. Walking by faith and not by sight becomes much easier, or at least more likely maybe, when walking by sight is taken off the table. There is so much beauty in the stories of the broken, the flawed, the wounded, and the lacking. If you're a songwriter or artist out there and you feel that you have been sidelined by some kind of lack, I hope this conversation has challenged those thoughts. Lean into your so-called losses and create from that space. You might be surprised what is waiting to grace your pen, your brush, your guitar, or your microphone. If, on the other hand, you are more of a consumer of art than a producer, I hope this conversation might inspire you to cultivate a deeper and deeper appreciation for the songs, the films, the stories, and the visual art that reflects the reality of life on this side of the veil. In our weakness, there is strength. Let's allow that reality to permeate our art, our hearts, and even the way we approach our perceived enemies. Maybe then, even though we still see things as if we are peering through a dark and dirty glass, we may catch a glimpse of the way things will someday be. Okay, I'm climbing off my soapbox now. And 
with that, we have made it to the end of another episode of the True Tunes podcast. Thank you, Jimmy Abeg, for allowing us to invade your brand new studio. You can find links to Jimmy's music and some photos of his new space and work on the show notes page for this episode at truetunes.com. I would also love for you to join me as a member of Jimmy's Patreon team. Just head to jimmyabeg.com for more info. I also want to thank Amy Grant, Steve Taylor, Charlie Peacock, and Daniel Gones from Lowland Hum for contributing to this show as well. Please help us spread the word and the love for Jimmy by telling your friends about this episode of the podcast. Make sure you subscribe and like and follow our Facebook page at True Tunes Now and our Instagram page at True Tunes Music to keep up with the conversation between episodes and make sure you don't miss out on anything. If you'd like to support this show by joining our Patreon circle, you can find the link on the show notes page or just go to patreon.com slash truetunes and check it out. As always, none of this would be possible without the help of my co-producer and compatriot, Bruce A. Brown. And thanks also to Phil Keggy and Rex Paul for our theme song and to all of the other musicians who have allowed us to use their music. And if this is your first time listening to the True Tunes podcast, welcome. If you dig what we're doing here, it would sure help if you would tell people about it. Leave us a good review at Apple Podcasts, post links on your platforms, but also think about friends that you suspect would enjoy conversations like these and just call them up and let them know. You can follow me on Instagram at the only JJT and at True Tunes Music and on Twitter at John J. Thompson. Oh, and if you have not heard it yet, check out the Electric Jesus podcast, a new series produced by Bruce and me for the team behind that film. The contents of the podcast are protected by U.S. copyright law and are the intellectual property of Gyroscope Productions with the exception of songs or clips that are from previously copywritten materials. Everything on this episode is used by permission or under fair use provisions. This program is intended for the private use of our listening audience. Gyroscope Productions can be reached at JJT at TrueTunes.com or P.O. Box 60401, Nashville, Tennessee, 37206. Until next time, this is JJT inviting you to listen for those beautiful weeks spots in your song or in the songs making their way into your ears and heart there's a kind of strength that comes through our weakness when we let it to which no amount of posturing or swagger can compare peace I still think a man should sing this song and he should sing it with real deep feeling Either Elvis Presley or um, Jim Neighbors.